Hey, um, last week, we ended on verse 9 and 10, talking about bond servants, and the whole issue of slavery came up, and afterwards, I was talking to a number of guys, and they were just blowing my mind. Uh, One of the brothers told me he had just read in a magazine that there are more slaves on the planet now than ever existed in all of history combined. And so I started looking into it. As I, as some other people said, actually, slavery in America is growing right now. And in the whole world, slavery is growing. So in the Herald Tribune, it's called The Dirty Secret of Human Trafficking. This just came out January 29th, 2010. It says, The Slave Next Door. Human trafficking and slavery in America today, enslaved workers can be found doing gardening, construction, agriculture, restaurant work, and sex work. The big three are agriculture, labor, labor, forced prostitution, and domestic servitude. The people are also enslaved as acrobats, hair braiders, uh, singers and boys choirs, deaf beggars in the subway in New York City. The author notes that statistically on human trafficking, a hard to come by, but they estimate conservatively that there are 50,000 enslaved workers in the United States. The State Department estimates that between 14,500 and 17,500 people are trafficked into the United States from overseas and enslaved each year, uh, right, bells, and soldalter. Um, and I know a number of them, believe it or not, are children from Haiti. And uh, I know that now with, you know, hundreds of thousands of orphans in Haiti, and uh, I know last week they, they found uh, somebody taking a whole bunch of them over to the Dominican Republic where they do have a number of Haiti slaves in the Dominican Republic. Um, and so they were taking just a group of these orphans and Of course, a number of them, they found out, weren't orphans at all, but they had been conned by saying, hey, he'll come and live in this big house and have a building swimming pool and all these things and trying to take them away from the parents and the parents giving them away, uh, not able to take care of them. And so we really need to pray that why things get sorted out, you know, the the kids from 80 get adopted. And that's really Calvary Chapel is what we're really concentrating on with the Haiti Relief is those orphan kids. And so we'll be talking more about that over the next year. But um, just really protection, you know. And uh, it's happened that there's people that have gone to Haiti to adopt a child, to bring him back, just to have him as a slave. Even though on the books, it's their child, they're just treating him as a slave in the home. And elsewhere in the world. And um, again, they... They estimate even here in the United States, there's tens of thousands of people kidnapped from here, taken abroad to other countries as sex slaves. And so we have a number of tens of thousands of people here in America every year that disappear, and it's believed that they were taken into a a sex ring by one of the groups of mafias and taken throughout the world. Time Magazine, June 18, 2009, fairly recent, uh, it says, Mohammed Salim Khan woke up in a strange house and felt an excruciating pain in his abdomen. Unsure where he was, uh, Khan asked a man wearing a surgical mask what had happened. We have taken your kidney, the stranger said, and if you tell anyone, we'll kill you. This particular gory testimony used by the United States Department and highlight the severity and the widespread nature of human trafficking is one of the many alarming personal accounts included in the 2009 Trafficking in Persons, TIP, report. According to the State Department, at least 12.3 million adults and children worldwide are subjected to forced labor, sexual servitude, stolen organs with a global financial crisis, heightening the problem through the increased demand for cheap labor, services, and even body parts. Here's another 2009 Trafficking in Persons report. Department of State, page 324. 324 pages. The International Labor Organization, the ILO, 
the United Nations agency charged with addressing labor standards, employment, and social protection issues estimated there are at least 12.3 million adults and children in forced labor, bond labor, commercial sexual servitude at any given time. Of these victims, the ILO estimates that at least 1.39 million are victims of commercial sexual servitude both transitional and within countries. According to the ILO, 56% of all the forced labor victims are women and girls. Human traffickers prey on the weak, targeting vulnerable men and women and children. They are used creative and ruthless ploys designed to trick, coerce, win confidence of potential victims. Very often, these ruses involve promises of better life through employment, education opportunities, or marriage. And so, you know, the girls get over to wherever they're getting and they're like, hey, I was going to get married. It's like, no, you're not. You're here and you're a prostitute wherever it is. I, I, I honestly think it's almost every country in the world is got some illegal underground sex slaves. Um, and so again, um, it's, it's amazing as we look at these last days and just should just rip our hearts out that anybody is in such bondage and anybody is in being abused and, and misused in, in such horrific ways. And let's just pray for that right now. And Lord, we do ask in Jesus' name, God, that uh, as we think of those who are imprisoned for the gospel, and here we see people that are enslaved by just ruthless men, men probably in many cases demon-possessed or definitely satanically inspired to have no conscience to take little kids, sometimes infants or two or three years old, and use them as sex slaves on up. And Lord, please, God, however you would have us, use us. Use our hearts, use our minds, use our prayers, use our lives for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't talk in detail, but there is within the Calvary Chapel movement a group of some rather wealthy businessmen who have basically written some blank checks to certain groups to go buy slaves, in particular just because they're Christians in Muslim worlds, and to then secretly sneak them out of that country in which they're enslaved and uh, set them free. And uh, we've been doing this for 15 years or more. And they estimated, last time I heard it, that they have bought and freed over 100,000 slaves throughout the world. So um, it's, it's just pretty an amazing thing, pretty amazing thing. So we definitely want to keep that in mind. I'm glad they brought that to my attention, that I could bring that up here tonight. Well, going on tonight, we have in Titus 2, verse 11, probably the most wonderful topic in the Bible, that of Grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Notice what the grace of God is also doing. Teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for our blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we may be able to go farther than that. But first of all, we want to make note that the grace of our God For, because of God's grace. There are some times that you just wish that you could climb into the mind of God and just try to touch these amazing traits or creative juices. I remember when we first went to Hungary, we would go into these sometimes fairly nice houses, but they would have mickey mouse stickers and they would like cover their couches in them they would put them on their plates on their table on their walls you know goofy and all of these and we'd like you know are are you what's going on here we'd ask somebody else and they're just like they're just overwhelmed you know at this time communism had ruled hungry for so many years that anybody could come up with something so cute. How can you take a disgusting rat and make it so cute you want to hug it and kiss it and so forth? What's going on? 
What's going on, you know? It's so amazing. And you really think about it, it it is pretty amazing. How you take a rodent and make it this lovable, cute creature that you love. In the same way, sometimes I just will see a little ladybug or I've seen things in a microscope that just blow my mind. Or just look at a little tiny hand of a baby. And I I could honestly just hold a baby for hours and just look at those little fingernails and those little fingers and it's it's just amazing sometimes when you think about things and how God thunked that up. That little cute little bug with that little fur on it, those two little eyes and all those thousand little legs walking or or a butterfly. Or sometimes just the singing of a bird and think about God making that vocal cords, different vocal cords of all kinds of creatures. The deep roar of a lion or the purr of a cat or the barking of a dog or the beauty of a, you know, or just standing at the ocean and it's, these waves crashing or at the bottom of a waterfall and just the power of it and just it's in this water that's so accessible but yet in such amazing force. And, and I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm amused easy. I don't know. But... When I come to grace, it's one of those things, it's sort of like love your enemy, pray for him, do good to him, bless them, that you just never would have thought it up on your own. I was talking to a pastor this last week and a Muslim guy came into the church and he just said, you know what? There is a billion Muslims on this world that hate your guts. Talking to him as a Christian. And he turned around and said to him, there's probably a billion Christians on this planet that love you completely. And just dumbfounded the guy. That's, that's something that Jesus taught us that we probably never would have thought ourselves. We never would have come up with that conclusion. Maybe hit him but not as hard or you know, kick them, but not in the groin, or, you know, we might have come up with some kind of variation of that, but we wouldn't have come up with love them unconditionally, even unto death. And here with grace, grace is just so amazing to realize that all we need and more, whatever it is. Remember the story of Moses? Who shall I say is sending me? I am. I am what? I am that I am. And we come up with the understanding that God is saying, what is it you need? I need a savior. I'm your savior. I need forgiveness. I'll forgive you. I need a healing. I'm your healer. I need strength. I'm your strength. I need wisdom. I'll be your wisdom. Whatever it is, God will be the most insignificant thing you need I just need a friend. I'll be your friend. Or something elaborate. I need a miracle. Then that's what you will do. That God is, is, is told us that he loves us completely. His love will never end. He will forgive us and that there'll be no end to that. That he'll be patient with us. There'll be no end to that. And we could just go on and on whatever characteristic you can come up with. How do you describe that? It's grace. God saying, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. The one who began this good work in you is going to complete it. I'm never giving up on you. And we see the thief on the cross, (laughs) this wicked guy to the last moments of his life, It dawned on him moments before he would die. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. No hesitation. No chip on the shoulder. Just even though you've been a sinner all your life, you were mocking me a few minutes ago, calling me names and cursing me with the multitude. Yet because you believed that I'm God, that I'm going to raise from the dead, you will share the same heaven with me for eternity. 
His hands are tied to the cross. His feet are tied to the cross. What did this guy ever do for God? Nothing. But that's the joy of grace. We learn that it's just God in the fullness of his nature and who he is wants to just bless us and love us and care for us and get us from point A to point Z all the way until we're standing with him in our brand new bodies in heaven. And this is the grace. In Acts it says, this is the gospel of grace. This is the gospel. It's the word of grace. In John 1, I think the best description given is in the gospel of John chapter 1. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness, of God's fullness, we have all received grace, then you have this preposition for, many translations says upon, and I think that's better. Same meaning, depends on how you define the preposition for. Grace for grace, or grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten of the Son, who is the bosom of the Father, but he has declared him. What is in the Father? Grace upon grace. And you know, grace is all you need and more. So how can you have upon grace? It's, it's really, it's an impossibility. But God is saying, I'm gonna give you all you need and much, much more and much, much more again. And this is the message that the Lord has given to us. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know this well, for by what? Grace. You've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't earn our way to heaven by our good works. We receive it as a gift of God, humbly overwhelmed with his amazing love for us, overwhelmed with his forgiveness towards us, overwhelmed with his patience towards us. And it just gets better. It just gets better. It's it, it just the revelation of God's grace just continually unfolds itself. In Ephesians 2, it actually says it's gonna continue to happen through eternity. We're gonna continue, God's gonna continue for eternity to reveal the abundance of his grace that we only see in part and know in part. Interesting in Acts 20, verse 32 It says, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So let's think about this verse a minute. That he's saying it's not just by grace you are saved, but it's the word grace that is to be with you every single day And that's how you're going to be built up and grow as a Christian. Ultimately, it's that which is maintaining you all the days of your life until you're handed off into God, into heaven for eternity. It's not just the grace that saves us, but it's the grace that brings sanctification throughout our life. In 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with this holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and what? Grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. So the word of grace, the gospel of grace, this attribute of God of grace, it was his plan before time began to eventually bring us in to the full understanding of grace and then to grow in that knowledge of grace. Now here's an interesting thing. It says 
This grace has appeared. This word in the Greek means to come to light, to be manifest to us. So God's grace was always there. And for a lot of people, they sort of understood it a little bit. You know, the one thing that everybody in hell is going to have in common is they prayed to God and God answered their prayers. They understood that even though I'm an atheist, (laughs) even though I'm an agnostic, even though I hate God 99.99% of the time, in this moment, my heart just sort of cried out, God save me, God help me, God get me out of this. And they understood that even though they were so contrary to God's will, that God was a God of grace, willing to reach out to them even though they weren't reaching out to him. Willing to bless them even though they had no intentions of blessing him. They, it's within our, I think within our creation, a part of our creation, if you would, is the circuit <laughs> to plug into God's grace. And I honestly don't believe there's been anyone who's ever walked on the face of the earth did not at one moment plug into the grace of God and understand the grace of God. And, um, but finally, the gospel of grace came. And they understood that God is full of grace. Of his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Now, here's a very important couple of words here. In verse 11, This grace of God that brings salvation to us, delivers to us salvation, has appeared to what? All men. Now there is a theology called Calvinism that within Calvinism, it basically says that God's salvation is only limited to a group of people that he has elected. And in this theology, they very, very much want you to believe that not all men can be saved, but only all the men that God's extended grace to. When Christ died on the cross, he only died for that group. And it's only within this select group that God's grace could ever reach. Well, you can do as extensive a study as you want into the word all, but at the end of the day, All means what? All. And it says this so many times, but what they have to do is they have to do some fancy tap dancing around it. Well, yes, all men that are elected, (laughs) all men that are called before the foundations of the world, all men that are, and they have to add to it. No, guys, God's grace extends to all men. Those who will believe and those who won't believe. Those who will end up in hell and those who are in heaven. God's grace is for all men. His arms are open wide to all men. They love to quote Charles Spurgeon, and I love Charles Spurgeon. In his early days, he was a, a rather zealous Calvinist. And they loved to quote those quotes of his in the early days. But Charles Spurgeon, in the last decade or two of his life, he he always gave strong appeals to whoever will come, let them come. And he was a part of of a conference of Baptist groups. And they basically told him, you cannot give an appeal for anyone who wants to be saved to be saved. You're actually torturing the non-believer, and that's cruel. Because chances are the person who's not a Christian can never become a Christian even if they want it because they're not elect. And by by you giving them that hope, you're actually torturing them. And it's just wrong to do that. It's immoral. And Charles Spurgeon said, you know what? If God revealed his election of men by putting a yellow stripe down everyone's back, he said, I could go through London lifting up coattails and then preach the gospel. But since God has not signified who the elect are by a yellow stripe down their back, I therefore will preach to every man as if he is the elect of God. 
And eventually, they basically said, give another invitation for a man to be saved. You're out of the conference. He said, let me save you the problem. Uh, We resign. We're no longer a part of your group. And by the end of his life, along with many other strong Calvinists, um, they had a, as you study through the scripture, you, you don't see the Calvinistic faith. You don't see the Arminius group, which is on the other side, which puts it all on man. You, you see both of these taught. And how do you put them together? The, the, the sovereign foreknowledge of God, the God who knows all things, and man's free will. How do you put those together? The Bible never does that. And I've had a few Calvinist friends say, you know, the Bible doesn't do that, but logically we can. <laughs> I'm a three-point Calvinist logically, a five-point, or three-point Calvinist biblically, and a five-point Calvinist logically, or they'll come up with all kinds of fancy stuff. But the bottom line is, is there is a free will of man, and Calvinism takes that away, where man can choose God or reject God at any point in time. And here, I just want to make it clear and just take a moment. I don't want to teach on a whole night. I don't want to have wasted too many conversations in one lifetime already on this subject. But I just want to share so many verses that points out this over and over again. For example, in Romans 3, verse 21 to verse 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to who? To all and all who believe. For there's one, no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sets forth as propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 5, verse 18. This is a very clear passage here. Therefore, as through one man's offense, referring to Adam, judgment came to what? All men. So let me ask you. When Adam sinned, did all the world become sinful in nature because of the sin of Adam? Is there any exceptions to that? All men bore the brunt of Adam's sin, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, referring to Jesus Christ, act, the free gift came to what? All men, resulting in justification of life. So if what Adam did affected all of mankind, then he's saying in the same way what Jesus did affected all of mankind. So if you look at it just in the English and in logic, it has to be referring to all men. Now some try to use this verse in what is called the universe, universalism of all brotherhood, where they say, oh, every human being is going to be saved then. But there's many verses that say otherwise on that, that not all men are going to be saved. Even though the, the free gift of God is extended to all men. Now in Romans 10, verse 11 through 13, and see some of you guys taking notes and you might want to write these verses down. And Romans 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, what? Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name. For whoever Calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we see there again that it's extending to all the people that would like to come. Let them come. In 1 Timothy 4.10. How are you doing there? Are we going to get it? to make it? You want to, is the verse there? Not there? Um, 1 Timothy 4.10 
For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of, notice, all men. He's the Savior of who? All men, especially of those who believe. In 1 Timothy 2, 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is that all men would be saved. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen, but that's his desire. For there is one God immediate between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for who? For all to be testified in due time. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if it's God's desire that all men would come, he had to give all men that opportunity to come. In 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for what? The whole world. The whole world has the opportunity to see that done. But again, they have to accept it. An interesting story back in 1830. George Wilson was convicted of robbing a U.S. mail service and he was sentenced to be hanged. However, President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson to release him. But Wilson refused to accept the president's pardon. They really didn't know what to do with this. Nobody had ever rejected a pardon, be hanged to death or be set free. So it finally worked its way to Chief Justice Marshall. And after pondering it and looking at it, he concluded that Wilson would need to be executed. Why? He said this, a pardon is just a slip of paper, wrote Marshall, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it's refused, then it's no pardon. It's just a piece of paper. George Wilson must be hanged. And so it's interesting that here Christ died for the sins of all the world. And to us who believe, to us it's more than just a moment in the history of mankind. It becomes the act the blood, the death, the punishment for us and eternal life. But to those who know, and Jesus was just another man, just another guy who bled, just another guy who died. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of people crucified throughout history. And it has no value to them. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 10, it says, such people trample underfoot the cross of Christ and insult the spirit of grace. And so again, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? All men. It tells us in John that God's spirit is in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The world knows there's something not quite right. The world knows that there's, there's a lack and they, there's, there's something missing and they don't know quite, quite what it is and that's where we need to be preaching the gospel. In um, verse 12 going on, it says now, referring back to the grace again, that the grace of God just doesn't save us, but the grace of God also is our teacher, teaching us that denying ungodliness worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. There are so many people that simply view Christianity as fire insurance. I want to get saved so I don't go to hell. I'll show up to church a few times a year to make sure I'm still on the list in heaven somewhere. And, but they, they haven't connected really in salvation that Christ isn't offering a ticket to heaven. That Christ is offering himself in a relationship with you. And true saving faith, James 2 says, faith without works is dead. That true saving faith is when one surrenders their life under Christ. 
no longer to live for themselves, but for Christ. So when a person has truly received the grace of God, the Bible talks about people receiving the grace of God in vain. In Galatians, it says that if you get circumcised and start trying to follow the law, you've fallen from grace. So there's people that have thrown away the grace of God to try to work out their salvation in their own works or their own religion. And even though they know the gospel of grace and that for a season in their life, they, they receive the gospel of grace, yet the proof of time revealed that in their heart they've always wanted to have a, a religion other than the gospel of grace, one by their own works. And of course, there's many who take and use the grace of God as a license for sin. And again in Galatians 5, he says very clearly that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so one of the proofs in the pudding that grace has brought salvation is that grace begins to teach. And I I can't tell you how many times I've seen people come to Christ and then the next week they're just sort of bewildered. They come back and just say, man, I've had the worst week of my life. And it's like, why? Well, you know, I went to go home to live with my girlfriend and I just was miserable with that relationship. I went out to the guys to go party Friday night, smoke a little weed and get drunk. And I just, I was just miserable the whole time. You know, I I got, started looking at my pornography, you know, to relax me after work. And I just, it was miserable. What's wrong with me? Well, the Holy Spirit lives in you. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit is teaching you. The word to teach here, it's not just like instructing like I'm doing now. It's actually the word to discipline, like a parent with a child. So if you would, grace convicts. You're like, man, that was such a convicting message to to repent or to put that compromise out of my life. I had a couple and they, they came, the first week I was in a passage in Mark that was just very much describing the love of God. This last week, it was also, but it was convicting how we need to give our lives to the Lord completely and be a person of prayer. And, and they came up going, you know, how do I put these two things together? My spirit bears witness with both of them, but I left last Sunday feeling so happy and good. This Sunday, I feel rather burdened. How, how do I deal with that? Hey, The grace of God isn't saying, here's a bunch of candy, go eat it in the corner. The grace of God convicts. The grace of God rebukes. The grace of God spanks. Hebrews 12 says, hey, if you're a child of God and you're in sin, one of the ways you know that you're a child of God is because you get a spanking. And if you can go sin and you don't have a heavy heart, you don't have the paddle of God, you need to question whether or not God's really your father. Because every son whom he loves, he also chastens. And I could dare guess about 100% of us at some point in time in the last several months needed a good spanking because of some compromise or because of some listening to our flesh or the world or the devil and and. and we begin to go down a path that leads to destruction and God loves us too much. So the grace of God teaches us or disciplines us, rebukes us, guides us, helps us with sometimes with a stern hand. I mean, you know, if you're a parent, you know how it is. I mean, sometimes you tell your kids, hey, that's hot, get away from there. Sometimes you tell your kids, that's hot. Really? Well, I really want to touch it now. You know, if you ever, you know, you know how the cops are always doing tricky things to get people's fingerprints? I got a solution for this. They never have to try to trick them, drink a Coke, and they never have to do that again. All you have to do in the police station is the very front wall, wet paint, do not touch. Everybody's going to touch that wall, you get the fingerprint. Just wait for the crook to walk by, he touches the wall. Get the finger bit. (laughs) 
How many of you guys have seen a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, and you're like, is that really wet? Let me touch that. Come on. How many of you guys? Raise your hand. Even if one's an eye crowd, come on. Of course. It's, it's our nature. And uh, anyway, you know, the crazy things I think of, forgive me. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's teaching us, disciplining us to a negative side of things, deny, to say no to. This is how you know when a child is growing in wisdom and maturity. Have you ever been somewhere and, and, and some guy says, hey, you know, you're over at some friend's house, you know, it's an hour before dinner. Hey, let's, everybody, here's a bowl of ice cream or a candy bar. And the kid says, ah, I can't eat that stuff before dinner. My parents say no. Even though it's somebody else's house and all the other kids are doing it, it's, it's like gone into their heart. They, no, no, I love ice cream, but no, because I know I'm, I gotta keep my stomach hungry for dinner to eat the good stuff. In the same way, there, there comes a point in the Christian's life that they love purity more than their lust. Now, you know what? You can't say you don't love your lust. We all do. Our flesh craves it, desires it. When you give it to it, it feels satisfied for a few minutes. It's elated. Ooh, the heart's pumping and the body's tingling and wow, this is wonderful. But then you gotta deal with the hours and the days afterwards, which is a grieving of the spirit, the grieving of your own conscience. And there comes a point going, even though I might be able to satisfy this lust, my, I don't know why, but my body's screaming and my mind's foggy and, you know, it could just be the pressure from the devil or pressure from the world or my own flesh. Sometimes our body does weird things. But I, I just know that, you know, maybe not an hour from now, but a couple hours from now, a day from now, I, I just, I, I'll just be miserable and you come to that place, man, I, I just so enjoy the joy of the Lord. I don't want to know what it's like for a second to grieve the Spirit. I so enjoy things being clear between me and God. I don't want there to be a second of, of, of a wall built up there. I so enjoy the fruits of the Spirit in my life. I don't want to quench the Spirit and, and not to have the fruits flowing. You guys know what I'm talking about? The grace of God spanks us, rebukes us, disciplines us, teaches us, loves us, guides us to come to that reality. And you know what I've discovered with people? They're gonna do what's ever in their heart. It says in the Proverbs, guard your heart for out of it flows the issues of life. And this is why, again, we wanna walk in the spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, if I'm listening to God and obeying God this minute, I will the next. If I spend all day today walking in the Spirit and I go to bed tonight in the Spirit, I'll be in the Spirit tomorrow morning when I wake up. But if I end the day in the flesh, I'm gonna wake up in the morning in the flesh. And it's powerless. You can't hear the voice of God Your heart's not stirred at the word. You have no joy in listening to worship. You're living in this, and all of a sudden, a couple days of that, a couple weeks of that, you're existing instead of living. You're just coping with life rather than enjoying life. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been in that rut many times in my life. Sometimes a couple days, sometimes a few weeks, I've been there for years at times as a Christian, just a very minimal life and, and just miserable every second of it, okay? So I think we can all identify with that. In our years of pilgrimage as a Christian, we've been in both places. You never regret the times you were in the spirit, bearing fruit, being a blessing, but you always regret the times you were either minimal as a Christian or definitely fleshly as a Christian. And the grace of God is there to help us, teach us.
Interesting, the word deny here is in the aorist past tense. The aorist past tense is a completed action. And so here he says, it's the grace of God teaches us to once and for all deny. I denied my flesh. It's done. I'm now living a life continuously. At a point in time in my life, I just said, God, I deny myself, and I've been in that state of denial of my flesh and the world's desires and Satan's desires ever since. This is what Paul is writing to Titus. And you know, I, I really have seen this as Christians. Just like when you came to Christ, there was a point in time where you say, I'm a Christian. I give my life to you, Lord. And you maybe have a date. And you know, not that you didn't have struggles and this and that and maybe doubted whether you were saved or not because you were so wicked for a few months. But I guarantee you this, that there's got to be a point in time, maybe even a Christian, a month, maybe years, maybe 10 years, but you've never come to that place in time where you said, no more. Flesh, you no longer are gonna get a second of my time. World, you are never even for a second gonna be able to listen. Am I gonna listen to you? Get behind me, Satan, permanently. I am denying myself. This is now, from this day forward, the permanent state of, the, of my heart. You know, I think of Daniel, he purposed in his heart. I love that. It's interesting in the kings that said that some kings purposed in their heart to serve the Lord, and they did. And it says of the other kings, they didn't purpose in their heart, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that in the Old Testament with the kings that if they didn't consciously purpose in their heart to consecrate the Lord, then they would end up doing evil. And I'll say that as a Christian. If you're basically going here, oh, I I do love it when I do deny myself and I've had a couple weeks in here and there and hit and miss and maybe over the last year, I could tell you a good five weeks I did that. But I don't, you know, there might come a time where I really need a joint. I mean, there might come a time where you know, it's like somebody tells me about this really gorgeous girl on the internet. I thought I look at porn every day, but you know, this is an exceptional case. I need to check this girl out. So I, I really don't want to say this is it because, you know, there may be some good opportunities out there. You know, I may have to lie a little bit to make this thing happen. I, I don't want to say, errors past tense, deny. I need to leave that door open a little, just for survival, you know, just to, just to get by, just to be normal, just a red-blooded American boy. You know, I got to keep my options a little bit open. I mean, 99% it's shut, but no. The grace of God teaches us that God's love is so amazing. Purity, the freedom that comes with purity, his love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness in our lives and a growing and abounding. There is the sweetest of the sweet of the sweet. There's nothing better. Years ago, I had a friend tell me that he went to a store and it said, the best brownie on earth. That's what it was, they titled it. And he thought, I've got to go try this. And he said, man, I ate that brownie and it's the best brownie I've ever had. And he goes, honestly, ever since then, I've never been able to eat another brownie. I can't eat brownies. I'll take a little nibble of one going, I, I've had the best brownie on earth. I really did. The guy wasn't lying. And it was someplace, I think in Pennsylvania or something. And he goes, I just crave, I do not crave brownies ever again. Only place I want to get brownies is that place. If I can't get it from there, I'm not interested. I love sweets, but you say, hey, we got brownies, not interested. I just want to eat dessert. Something happened there in his mind, in his heart, in his senses. And it's the same way when you have really experienced Christ in that way. The sweet, he's the sweetest of the sweetest of the sweetest. When the other opportunities come, the other things come, 
you're just like, I, no. I, I, I have such a wonderful purity with God. I, I don't care what the opportunities of impurity are. They're not interested. I'm not interested. Now, if I sit here and ask, boy, am I alive? Let me think if I could be interested. You're going to get interested. I'm not going to give it a second of thought. I can be. I could be lustful or angry or greedy or any other sinful things. If I meditated and worked on it, I could get back there pretty easily. Okay, but I'm not, I don't want to. There comes that point. The grace of God teaches us in a very decisive, permanent way where we say, from this point forward, there's one light, and that's you. There's one joy, and that's in you. There's one life, and that's in you. And God, I I fully surrender my life. You know, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I've married a lot of people through the years, in in weddings, that is, as a pastor. (laughs) I remember years ago when my son Nathan was like four years old, and I was getting in a suit and leaving on a Saturday. And he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go marry some people. And he's like, what about mom? I said, no, no, I'm going to do a wedding ceremony. I'm not going to marry them. <laughs> but anyway, and I'll tell you what, you can sense it. There's some people and they just, to the degree they understand, they are fully committed to each other. But you know they don't really fully understand. And you know that commitment is going to be seriously challenged probably within the first few months of their marriage. But there are other people, they fully understand. And on that day of the wedding, they are not just saying some words, they are truly, permanently, till death do them part, giving themselves and not to any other till the day they die. And it's, it's powerful. God's in the midst of that. The angels are saying, it's, you, you know what I'm saying? And I think in Christianity, it's the same way. I think there's a lot of people that come to church and claim to be Christians, and there's just not that 100% God, you're it, nothing else will ever do until I see you face to face in heaven, it's settled. But then there's people that are that way and there is a beauty about it. There is a power about it. There is just a sense of God with them in an amazing way. You know what I'm saying? And this is what the grace of God teaches us. Deny errors past tense. Number one, ungodliness. I could talk about that, but the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You know, they're, they're attraction. I, I, I don't want to say Satan is selling a merchandise that nobody wants, okay? Satan is selling merchandise that every one of us want in our flesh, okay? In a fleshly way, you know, Satan is selling what we want. I mean, it'd, it'd be like, you know, you go to one stand and they're selling all vegetables and you go to the next stand and they're selling all candy. <laughs> and it's lunchtime, you're going, man, that candy looks good, but I should eat the vegetables. You know, I understand the pull. I understand the draw. I can't look at somebody going, what? You did what? I can't understand that. I can understand everybody's sin. You know, you did this, you did that, you lied, you, adul- you had adultery, you cheated, you lusted, you looked at porn, you, what, I, I can understand all those sins. Those are definitely in me. And when I hear other people done them, I sort of get jealous for a minute. It's like, wow, man, that's, I'd be, I'd be satisfying to my flesh too. Right? You ever been on a diet and somebody's eating a big chocolate cake in front of you? Okay, I mean, I can understand it. I don't want to say that I'm so holy I can't understand, I can understand it. But the grace of God permanently says ungodliness. There's no value in it in the long run. Secondly is worldly lust. And again, I could go off into that, but I won't. But notice on the positive side of things, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but the grace of God also disciplines us, convicts us, instructs us, guides us, that we should live. Notice these three things soberly, 
righteously, godly. Soberly is towards ourself. You know, and really, when people don't study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, they are, they're just so stupid because they're just setting themselves up for a fall. All the word is given for us to have the full godly life, for life and godliness. All the word of God, it says in Peter, for life and godliness. And there's so many times you, you have people, they're ready to divorce and they well, and the woman has all these expectations, men has all these expectations. You're just like going, have you guys read the Bible? We're not to have those expectations towards one another. No man can fulfill that. No woman can fulfill that. God tells you, point out that he is to be the fulfillment, that men can't do that. And if you had read the Bible, you would have been sober to have a sober expectation of another human being. But your expectation of that human being is not biblical, right? I mean, we, we, can, we can all think up things that are impossible to have. You know, we can all think of a perfectly straight line. But a perfectly straight line can't exist. Okay? But we know one exists because we can think of it. In the same way, we can think of a perfect human being. And some people want to strive themselves to be that perfect human being. Some people want that perfect human being. But it can't exist. And in many other ways, we need to be sober towards humanity, towards work, towards our children, towards a number of things. Secondly is righteously towards others. We need to be righteous towards them and a a right living towards them. We're to love them, pray for them, bless them, do good to them, forgive them. And then third thing is godly, which is speaking towards God. So we're to live soberly in ourselves, we're to live righteously towards others, and we're to live godly towards God. In other words, he's made us in his image to worship him by living in that image. And notice where? In this present age. You know, oh, well, if I lived back during Paul's times, that would be a possibility. No. God's power is equal in every generation. And I understand Living in Sodom Gomorrah was probably harder than living in or somewhere else, somewhere else okay? I, I'm not disagreeing with that. But no matter how wicked the generation we live in, God is greater. Wherever our weakness is, his strength will be greater. Wherever our sin is, his grace will be greater. In Galatians 1.4, it says that who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this, What? present evil age according to the will of God our Father. So Christ on the cross, when he died, and he said, it is finished. It wasn't just salvation. It was sanctification till the end of life where we die, walking in him. But it also was saying, it's finished. I'm gonna give you the power to overcome whatever culture, whatever generation, whatever location you're living in. I will give you the power to live godly no matter where you are at on planet earth in this present age. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we know there's so much more that your spirit is gonna continue to speak to us as we head home in our own ways tonight. And we just ask, Lord, that we know we're gonna do what's in our heart. But my fear is that's in our heart and many of us that we just haven't in an aorist past tense, denied ourselves That we've consciously or subconsciously left the little door open. And we've even used your grace as a ticket to live in the flesh. I'll sin a little bit and feel a little remorse and ask God to forgive me later and all will be well. Forgive us for such foolishness. We know we're gonna reap what we sow. We know we're gonna grieve the spirit. We're gonna hinder the fruitfulness and so many other consequences. Lord, cleanse us, forgive us, heal us. And right now you're tonight. This could be your night. I remember when Brian was teaching, <laughs> Titus chapter two, verse 11 and 12. And I, just like on the day I was saved, I 
denied my flesh, the world, the devil permanently to no longer live in the world, to no longer live according to my lust, but I purposed in my heart from this point forward to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world in which I live. Not another place, not another location, not when I get older or retire or the kids move out or I get more money, but now, in this world, we would at this moment purpose to live holy for you. What joy, what, what freedom, what power there is in the Spirit. Lord, that all of us tonight would leave this place knowing that intimate, deep relationship with you. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen and amen and amen. God bless you richly. Give at least three giant bear hugs and tell them the grace of God has appeared to you tonight. Okay? Key phrase, secret phrase. The grace of God has appeared to you tonight. Bye-bye.